Chapter 1 of Master Zacharias. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Master Zacharias by Jules Verne. Chapter 1 A Winter Night. The city of Geneva lies at the west end of the lake of the same name. The Rhone, which passes through the town at the outlet of the lake, divides it into two sections, and is itself divided in the center of the city by an island placed midstream. A topographical feature like this is often found in the great depots of commerce and industry. No doubt the first inhabitants were influenced by the easy means of transport which the swift currents of the river offered them. Those roads which walk along of their own accord, as Pascal put it. In the case of the Rhone, it would be the road that ran along. Before new and regular buildings were constructed on this island, which was enclosed like a Dutch galley in the middle of the river, the curious mass of houses, piled one on the other, presented a delightfully confused cudea, the small area of the island had compelled some of the buildings to be perched, as it were, on the piles, which were entangled in the rough currents of the river. The huge beams, blackened by time and worn by the water, seemed like the claws of an enormous crab and presented a fantastic appearance. The yellow streams, which were like cobwebs stretched amid this ancient foundation, quivered in the darkness as if they had been the leaves of some old oak forest, while the river engulfed in this forest of piles foamed and roared most mournfully. One of the houses of the island was striking for its curiously aged appearance. It was the dwelling of the old clockmaker, Master Zacharias, whose household consisted of his daughter, Gerand, Albert Thun, his apprentice, and his old servant, Scholastique. There was no man in Geneva to compare in interest with this Zacharias. His age was past finding out. Not the oldest inhabitant of the town could tell for how long his thin, pointed head had shaken above his shoulders nor the day when, for the first time, he had walked through the streets with his long white locks floating in the wind. The man did not live. He vibrated like the pendulum of his clocks. His spare, cadaverous figure was always clothed in dark colors. Like pictures of Leonardo da Vinci, he was sketched in black. Durand had the pleasantest room in the whole house whence, through a narrow window, she had the inspiring view of the snowy peaks of Jura. But the bedroom and workshop of the old man were a kind of cavern, close on the water, the floor of which rested on the piles. From time immemorial, Master Zacharias had never come out except at mealtimes, and when he went to regulate the different clocks of the town. He passed the rest of his time at his bench, which was covered with numerous clockwork instruments, most of which he had invented himself. For he was a clever man. His works were valued in all France and Germany. The best workers in Geneva readily recognized his superiority, 
and showed that he was an honor to the town by saying, To him belongs the glory of having invented the escapement. In fact, the birth of true clockwork dates from the invention which the talents of Zacharias had discovered not many years before. After he had worked hard for a long time, Zacharias would slowly put his tools away, cover up the delicate pieces he had been adjusting with glasses, and stop the active wheel of his lathe. Then he would raise the trapdoor constructed in the floor of his workshop, and, stooping down, used to inhale for hours together the thick vapors of the Rhone as it dashed along under his eyes. One winter's night, the old servant, Scholastique, served the supper, which, according to old custom, she and the young mechanic shared with their master. Master Zacharias did not eat, though the food carefully prepared for him was offered in a handsome blue and white dish. He scarcely answered the sweet words of Gerond, who evidently noticed her father's silence, and even the clatter of Scholastique herself no more struck his ear than the roar of the river, to which he paid no attention. After the silent meal, the old clockmaker left the table without embracing his daughter or saying his usual good night to all. He left by the narrow door leading to his den, and the staircase groaned under his heavy footsteps as he went down. Durand, Aubert, and Scholastique sat for some minutes without speaking. On this evening, the weather was dull, the clouds dragged heavily on the Alps and threatened rain. The severe climate of Switzerland made one feel sad, while the south wind swept round the house and whistled ominously. "'My dear young lady,' said Scholastique at last, "'do you know that our master has been out of sorts for several days? Holy Virgin, I know he has no appetite because his words stick in his inside.' and that it would take a very clever devil to drag even one out of him. My father has some secret cause of trouble that I cannot even guess, replied Gerond, as a sad anxiety spread over her face. Mademoiselle, don't let such sadness fill your heart. You know the strange habits of Master Zacharias. Who can read his secret thoughts in his face? No doubt some fatigue has overcome him, but tomorrow he will have forgotten it and be very sorry to have given his daughter pain. It was Aubert who spoke thus, looking into Tron's lovely eyes. Aubert was the first apprentice whom Master Zacharias had ever admitted to the intimacy of his labors, for he appreciated his intelligence, discretion, and goodness of heart and this young man had attached himself to Gerond with the earnest devotion natural to a noble nature. Gerond, eighteen years of age, her oval face recalled that of the artless Madonna, whom veneration still displays at the street corners of the antique towns of Brittany. Her eyes betrayed an infinite simplicity. One would love her as the sweetest realization of a poet's dream. Her apparel was of modest colors, and the white linen which was folded around her shoulders had the tint and perfume peculiar to the linen of the church. She led a mystical existence in Geneva, which had not as yet 
been delivered over to the dryness of Calvinism. While night and morning she read her Latin prayers in her iron-clasped missal, Durand had also discovered a hidden sentiment in Aubert Thun's heart, and comprehended what a profound devotion the young workman had for her. Indeed, the whole world in his eyes was condensed into this old clockmaker's house, and he passed all his time near the young girl when he left her father's workshop after his work was over. Old Scholastique saw all this, but said nothing. Her loquacity exhausted itself in preference on the evils of the times and the little worries of the household. Nobody tried to stop its course. It was with her, as with the musical snuff-boxes which they made at Geneva. Once wound up, you must break them before you will prevent their playing all their airs through. Finding Durand absorbed in a melancholy silence, Scholastique left her old wooden chair, fixed a taper on the end of a candlestick, lit it, and placed it near a small waxen virgin, sheltered in her niche of stone. It was the family custom to kneel before this protecting Madonna of the domestic hearth, and to beg her kindly watchfulness during the coming night. But on this evening, Durand remained silent in her seat. Well, well, dear demoiselle, said the astonished Scholastique. Supper is over, and it is time to go to bed. Why do you tire your eyes by sitting up late? Ah, holy virgin, it's much better to sleep and get a little comfort from happy dreams. In these detestable times in which we live, who can promise herself a fortunate day? Ought we not send for a doctor for my father? asked Gerond. A doctor, cried the old domestic. Has Master Zacharias ever listened to their fancies and pompous sayings? He might accept medicines for the watches, but not for the body. What shall we do? murmured Gerond. Has he gone to work or to rest? Gerond, answered Aubert softly. Some mental trouble annoys your father, that is all. Do you know what it is, Aubert? Perhaps, Gerond. Tell us then, cried Scholastique eagerly, economically extinguishing her taper. For several days, Gerond, said the young apprentice, Something absolutely incomprehensible has been going on. All the watches which your father has made and sold for some years have suddenly stopped. Very many of them have been brought back to him. He has carefully taken them to pieces, the springs were in good conditions, and the wheels well set. He has put them together yet more carefully. But despite his skill, they will not go. The devil is in it! cried Scholastique. Why say you so? asked Gerond. It seems very natural to me. Nothing lasts forever in this world, and the infinite cannot be fashioned by the hands of men. It is nonetheless true, returned Aubert, that there is in this something very mysterious and extraordinary. 
I have myself been helping Master Zacharias to search for the cause of this derangement of his watches, but I have not been able to find it, and more than once I have let my tools fall from my hands in despair. But why undertake so vain a task? resumed Scholastique. Is it natural that a little copper instrument should go of itself and mark the hours? We ought to have kept to the sundial. You will not talk thus, Scholastique, said Aubert, when you learn that the sundial was invented by Cain. Good heavens! What are you telling me? Do you think, asked Gerond simply, that we might pray to God to give life to my father's watches? Without doubt, replied Aubert. Good, they will be useless prayers, muttered the old servant, but heaven will pardon them for their good intent. The taper was relighted. Scholastique, Gerond, and Aubert knelt down together upon the tiles of the room. The young girl prayed for her mother's soul, for a blessing for the night, for travelers and prisoners, for the good and the wicked, and more earnestly than all for the unknown misfortunes of her father. Then the three devout souls rose with some confidence in their hearts, because they had laid their sorrow on the bosom of God. Aubert repaired to his room. Gerond sat pensively by the window, whilst the last lights were disappearing from the city streets. And Scholastique, having poured a little water on the flickering embers and shut the two enormous bolts on the door, threw herself upon her bed, where she was soon dreaming that she was dying of fright. Meanwhile, the terrors of this winter's night had increased. Sometimes, with the whirlpools of the river, the wind engulfed itself among the piles, and the whole house shivered and shook. But the young girl, absorbed in her sadness, thought only of her father. After hearing what Aubert told her, the malady of Master Zacharias took fantastic proportions in her mind, and it seemed to her as if his existence so dear to her, having become purely mechanical, no longer moved on its worn-out pivots without effort. Suddenly, the penthouse shutter, shaken by the squall, struck against the window of the room. Gerond shuddered and started up without understanding the cause of the noise which thus disturbed her reverie. When she became a little calmer, she opened the sash. The clouds had burst, and a torrent-like rain pattered on the surrounding roofs. The young girl leaned out of the window to draw to the shutter shaken by the wind, but she feared to do so. It seemed to her that the rain and the river, confounding their tumultuous waters, were submerging the frail house, the planks of which creaked in every direction. She would have flown from her chamber, but she saw below the flickering of a light which appeared to come from Master Zacharias's retreat. And in one of those momentary calms during which the elements keep a sudden silence, her ear caught plaintive sounds. She tried to shut her window, but could not. The wind violently repelled her, like a thief who was breaking into a dwelling. Gerund thought she would go mad with terror, 
What was her father doing? She opened the door and it escaped from her hands and slammed loudly with the force of the tempest. Durand then found herself in the dark supper room, succeeded in gaining, on tiptoe, the staircase which led to her father's shop, and pale and fainting, glided down. The old watchmaker was upright in the middle of the room, which resounded with the roaring of the river. His bristling hair gave him a sinister aspect. He was talking and gesticulating without seeing or hearing anything. Durand stood on the threshold. It is death, said Master Zacharias in a hollow voice. It is death. Why should I live longer? now that I have dispersed my existence over the earth. For I, Master Zacharias, am really the creator of all the watches that I have fashioned. It is a part of my very soul that I have shut up in each of these cases of iron, silver, or gold. Every time that one of these accursed watches stops, I feel my heart cease beating, for I have regulated them with its pulsations. As he spoke in this strange way, the old man cast his eyes on his bench. There lay all the pieces of a watch that he had carefully taken apart. He took up a sort of hollow cylinder, called a barrel, in which the spring is enclosed, and removed the steel spiral. But instead of relaxing itself, according to the laws of elasticity, it remained coiled on itself like a sleeping viper. It seemed knotted like the impotent old men whose blood has long been congealed. Master Zacharias vainly essayed to uncoil it with his thin fingers, the outlines of which were exaggerated on the wall. But he tried in vain. And soon, with a terrible cry of anguish and rage, he threw it through the trap door into the boiling Rhone. Durand, her feet riveted to the floor, stood breathless and motionless. She wished to approach her father, but could not. Giddy hallucinations took possession of her. Suddenly she heard, in the shade, a voice murmur in her ears. Durand, dear Durand, Grief still keeps you awake? Go in again, I beg you. The night is cold. Aubert, whispered the young girl, you, ought I not to be troubled by what troubles you? These soft words sent the blood back into the young girl's heart. She leaned on Aubert's arm and said to him, My father is very ill, Aubert. You alone can cure him, for this disorder of the mind would not yield to his daughter's consolings. His mind is attacked by a very natural delusion, and in working with him, repairing the watches, you will bring him back to reason. Albert, she continued, it is not true, is it, that his life is mixed up with that of his watches? Albert did not reply. But is my father's trade condemned by God? asked Durand, trembling. I know not, replied the apprentice, warming the cold hands of the girl with his own. 
but go back to your room, my poor Durand, and with sleep recover hope. Durand slowly returned to her chamber and remained there till daylight, without sleep closing her eyelids. Meanwhile, Master Zacharias, always mute and motionless, gazed at the river as it rolled turbulently at his feet. End of chapter one.